Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. The last Senate term saw much debate about the future of housing. The Welsh Government ended the right to buy, yet at Welsh Labour Conference two years ago, First Minister Mark Drake would promise to abolish no-fault evictions. However, they remain. Developers across urban Wales built towers and more recently bridges that lay in direct opposition to the desires of local communities. In rural Wales, local people are priced out of living in the town or village of their birth. This problem is particularly acute in areas with traditionally high levels of Welsh as a first language. So has the last 20 years or so seen a success in the housing sector, or is this portfolio built on shaky grounds? Joining me this evening to talk all things housing are Dr. Steph Evans, Policy and Research Officer at the Bevan Foundation. Hello, Steph. Hello. Uh, we've got Tamsin Sterling, who's a freelance housing researcher based in Cardiff. Hello, Tamsin. Hi. And we've got Stuart Rockey, Chief Executive of Community Housing Cymru. Hello, Stuart. Hello, how are you? Very well, thank you. Before we look to the future, let's reflect a bit on the past. We've had devolution now in Wales for nearly 22 years. How has the Welsh Government dealt with housing since that time? Um, Tamsin, do you want to start us off? Yeah, big question. Um, I think I'd say my overall assessment would be variable. I think if you look at um, certainly in the early terms of devolution, the early terms of the um, Assembly, um, housing probably didn't have as much priority as we see it today, you know, and I'm very pleased to see some of the, you know, we just had some recent financial um, news come through um, in terms of investment in housing, which is very um, pleasing to see. So before we had devolution in Wales, there was a body called Ty Cymru, had the sort of funding and regulatory responsibilities for housing associations. And if you took the budget of the best year in terms of investment that Ty Cymru had and kind of pitched it forwards to, to now, I think you'd end up with something like £300 million a year. And the announcements we've just had recently bring things up to £250 million a year. So I think that shows... So I think... And when you get a kind of... a pick, There was quite a few years where housing had a low priority, certainly investment-wise. And that takes a long time to recover from. Um, and I think we're sort of... We're, we're suffering, still suffering from that in a way. So I'd say variable... Um, I think there's been some really good stuff on around legislation, um, which only takes you so far implement, to really have impact. Legislation has got to be implemented and implemented in the spirit rather than implemented as a compliance thing. So I think, but we have seen undoubtedly, you know, getting rid of right to buy, great. Homelessness prevention legislation, great. Um, but I think some of the legislation we've passed hasn't really had, you know, it hasn't fully bitten. And I still think, you know, I was, I was thinking about this. I'm thinking, okay, so if we... You know, all the activities that I know um, Stuart will mention that the Housing Association sector have been really busy delivering, all great stuff, you know, but have we, you know, are there any fewer people on housing waiting lists today than there were X years ago? Are there any fewer empty homes in, you know, roughly in Wales today than there were X years ago? Have we made real strides in terms of affordab affordability? I suppose the three big things with housing, affordability, security and quality, you know, have we really made mega strides on those for the majority of the population in Wales? And I think um, the answer has to come back. No, we've done some good things for some people in some places. Um, and I think that's the that kind of for me, you know, and I and I've been part of this ecosystem, if you like. So, you know, the, it's on me as much as on anyone else, you know, that we've um, we've been very busy. We've done a lot. But actually, I'm, in terms of really breaking through really get into a position where we've seen from COVID how important a good home is to everyone, you know, in a public health sense, as well as 
as well as you know a social justice sense as well as a family sense as well as being able to thrive sense you know it still feels like we've got you know quite a long way to go to make that a reality for folk across Wales so a bit of good bit of bad bit of frustration I think. <laughs> Steph what about you what do you think? Yeah, I think I think I agree with Tamsin broadly there in terms of I think what what we've achieved and, and what we haven't achieved there as well in that. I think there's also space here to think about kind of, you know, have we thought differently enough about housing over that period as well? So I think in some areas, I think we clearly have. So right to buy is, you know, an obvious example there of where we have taken a conscious decision to depart from where the UK government was going and kind of what's gone on with the housing sector there in England you know, kind of the less prevalence of affordable rent taken over from social rent as well, I think is kind of another example there, maybe where we have been more proactive in terms of kind of looking after a sector there, a tenure there, that's really important in terms of providing housing for the people on the lowest incomes, whereas England have pursued more marketized kind of ideas around that. So I think that's it's another positive example. But I think there have been other areas where maybe we have been a bit timid about taking things on. So a very recent example of that might well be over stamp duty. So, you know, the UK government has extended stamp duty holiday in England after properties over 500,000. And in Wales, there's clearly some uncomfortable, um, you know, discomfort in Welsh government around that decision because they haven't expanded up to 500,000. But they've still done it. They've still done it up to 250,000. So we kind of halfway house uh, on some of this stuff. Whereas um, most recently in Scotland, the Scottish government have announced actually they're not going to extend that holiday. Um, there in Scotland so that's just one example there maybe of where maybe we're trying to think differently help to buy is another one there you know helping people with um, home ownership costs we're still spending 70 million pound a year there on a type of housing that has questionable impact in terms of increasing affordability um, of, of the broader sector so there's these kind of broader ideas maybe where I think we have made some progress but are, have we been willing enough to really take on some of the broader ideas around this, which I think maybe we probably want to reflect on when thinking about actually what sort of system do we want to design for the needs of Wales. Yeah, I think I broadly agree with both uh, Tamsin and Steph actually on, on a lot of that. But I, I do think it's worth focusing on the distinctiveness a little bit. Arguably, housing has been the most distinct policy area in many ways for me that Welsh Government have pursued. Stefan mentioned the, um, the absolute conscious decision to depart from where England went uh, on social housing funding. Uh, and I left England after a disastrous spending review in 2010, which saw investment into social housing cut by 63% in that spending review. Um, some people might hold me responsible for that. I think I drafted the National Housing Federation's comprehensive spending review submission that year. Clearly the zeitgeist wasn't with me. So you know, a, a, a conscious decision to move away from those decisions, but focus on social housing where England went the other way, uh, right to buy has rightly been mentioned. So a clear, a clear intention to follow a distinctive policy, possibly not entirely backed up with words uh, and deeds on the social housing uh, side until very recently. Uh, my favourite stat at the moment, which illustrates really the rise in priority, I think, that housing has been given by Welsh Government over the last five years, is in 2016, we had £68 million pound, uh, in, the, in the capital pot to invest in social housing. Uh, as of last week, we're up to 250 million. That's quite a turnaround, actually, in five years in terms of the amount we've been invested. Um, and I think the argument's cut through, actually, around the need for safe, secure, affordable homes, absolutely, but also the role that housing plays for economic recovery. Steph's absolutely right, though, about help to buy and um, stamp duty extensions. And, you know, I, I think this is an example where, unfortunately, sometimes we are tied a little bit into the debate, the politi political debate that happens at Westminster at an English level. 
the Welsh Government, for whatever reason, have chosen to go with demand side measures instead of supply side measures there, because they feel the politics of that is they have to, when help to buy is extended, it's popular with a number of people. When stamp duty holidays are extended, we, you know, we go half the way there. And I think we, you know, the next step, having funded social housing, is to break out of that cycle. And I think it's right, plough our own path in terms of what's best for the overall housing market in Wales. Um, so, yeah, lots of, lots of things to admire in the way the Welsh Government have done housing policy. And I think they're the right things. But yeah, I absolutely agree, a lot further to go. And a lot, a lot where we can still even be more distinct, I think, from, from England. So you've all mentioned ending right to buy, and you've all done so quite positively. So I don't need to ask my next question, which was whether you think they were, the Welsh Government was right to do so. But I do want to ask if there's been any impact on housing stock. Has, have you already seen more housing stock available or is it still too soon to really see any major difference? No, you can see that you can see the impact straight away for me because the number of sales obviously is finished and it, and it was falling through the floor as Welsh Government May took measures to reduce discounts before abolishing right to buy. So anything we then build is adding to the stock, which is, trust me, a massive step forward because that wasn't happening when right to buy was in place. Um, you know, right to buy was a was a disastrous policy for me on a number of levels. Of course, it's right to give people choice and help people achieve their aspirations about owning homes. But the way it was done just meant that those homes were never replaced. And I'd equally add as well that um, you know, the investment then into some of those properties didn't happen. You know, homeowners, probably marginal homeowners in some cases, not able to put the investment into their properties to keep them up to standard. So you actually saw social housing on those housing estates that outstrip in quality, way outstrip in quality, the ones that were bought and right to buy. Increasing the number of those properties that ended up on the private rental market. Mm, no. that's, so, what, that's, that's what I was going to flag up, really. You know, that, that actually, so you get, you get properties that are then sold on, after right to buy maybe once or twice and end up end up with a landlord um, so yeah, rented yeah. out rented out to people in housing need but at private rented sector rents not social rents you know so they've been built with subsidy yeah. or investment you know public investment sold with subsidy and then now you know often housing benefit or universal credit will be paying a good job yeah. it's not a wise set of investment if you were if no. you were starting from scratch you wouldn't you wouldn't go down that you wouldn't go down that route you used to be able to say, didn't you, that when you when you when you drove through a, a social housing estate, you could see the properties that had been bought. They had, you know, they were painted a different colour. When we had that horrible thing of painting everything the same colour, they had different doors. Actually, you can see the ones that are privately bought now because generally, not always, but generally, they often have lower standard than the, the properties that remain in council or housing association ownership. And that's a reality. I, I think just to jump in on what. Um... Tamsin kind of added there around the kind of a private rental element here as well, I think is really important around, I'm touching back on what Stuart mentioned earlier about the kind of a demand side versus the supply side, because, you know, it, it, it's getting itself into a vicious circle of where we're using public funds to subsidise private landlords to pay off their mortgages so that they can go and buy more homes to rent out. You know, that's essentially what we're doing with that system when, you, when you're subsidising um, you know, demand rather than supply. So, you know, moving away from that system, even as a starting point, is a positive thing but obviously the question is how can we move that further so that you know is supply that we're focusing on in wales um or, or, or rather than the demand side issues and then do you think we're building enough housing stock in the, in the social housing sector <laughs> no and i mean it's great you know it's great to have seen the increased targets you know so we had the um term before last we had a target of ten thousand new um affordable homes most of them social rented um the last administration it was um, about fourteen and a half thousand, if because the twenty thousand target included help to buy, which I thought was 
one of those things, round it up to 20,000, but I, you know, help to buy is, is by and large not affordable, uh, about affordable housing. Um, but um, so, but even if you look then in terms of the, you know, the last um, national needs assessment that Alan Holmans was involved with, you know, we're not, we're still under, we're still under, even with that, you know, and, and that target's going to be exceeded, I think, this this term, you know, we all, lots of lots of energy, effort, commitment, you know, all that stuff going in, but we're still under pitching. And there's also the issue, I think, for me, which is always, I've kind of never managed to square the circle on this, that, you know, local authorities do the housing market assessments of, of their area. They do take account of, of migration of people, they don't take account of migration of money. So when, the, and then they, you know, they make their plans, LDPs, the local development plans, and have the, you know, the, the pipeline which will deliver somewhere near the figures that they actually need. Never, never seems to be quite enough. But, but actually, then what happens to those homes? You know, and and we know housing is a really attractive investment vehicle. It's become about in almost you know in many cases about investment rather than about home and so how many of the of, on the private market i mean now not the social housing but how many how many of those homes are then not meeting a meeting the need that the local authority identified but actually providing an investment vehicle for for someone or a company or a pension scheme it's a very it's a very complex issue so i think we're always under pitching in terms of in terms of numbers and i think i'm really glad well, again one of the distinctive you know the distinctive elements that both um, Steph and Stuart have mentioned is how Wales has retained a focus on social rent in its affordable housing program. So about 80% of the program is social rent, 20% affordable. But, um, you know, we're still, you know, yeah, massively underpitching. And, you, and now you look at the numbers um, with the, all the effort that's gone to get folk off the street and out of really inappropriate temporary accommodation during the pandemic. We've now got well over 3,000 households in temporary accommodation, so we need to find accommodation. They're not, I would say they they haven't been, they haven't got homes, they've been accommodated, but then that temporary accommodation is not a home. So we need to, we need to, I, so I think we should be much more ambitious and we're seeing that come through in a couple of the manifestos, I think, but then that's got to be about reality. It's got to be about, for me, about social rent. You know, we, we keep just playing around, tinkering around, as we've seen in England, with definitions of affordability, when you kind of know, actually, people on the lowest incomes can't afford those homes anyway. We're, we're kind of wasting our energies in the, wrong, in the wrong direction. I think just to follow up on that, I think in addition to having the ambition in terms of building, the progress we've made around funding is great, but that needs to go further as well, because obviously a lot of the responsibility for this has fallen on housing associations' shoulders in terms of financing and constructing these homes, um, you know, which in turn, you know, there has been pressures in the social sector around rents going up above inflation. And I know there's been some progress um, recently with kind of many social landlords kind of slowing down that process. But, you know, there's still been that process where rents have gone up. And there was a report by Joseph Roundry Foundation in the autumn. I showed that, that, that there's about 40,000 households and um, people there being affected and pushed into poverty because of rising social rents. So and, and there's, there's many reasons why that has happened. But I think that is something that we're going to need to address as well over the next period. It's not an easy solution. I don't think there's any one quick fix around this. But I think that is something that we need, need to be thinking about is, boosting supply and boosting the money into it so that, that that pressure to increase rents isn't there because obviously ultimately that will you know lead to people living in poverty and also not being able to afford those rents which then undermines kind of the ability of of, of social landlords to build more social housing so i think we need to have you know, kind of continue to think more holistically about what we're going to be doing longer term on that front yeah i think holistic is the right is the right word Steph. you know affordability is a challenge i think 
you can look at you can look at national data, and, and you know, I, and I think it outlines the issue. Um, I don't think it quite digs into it in a local level or more as much granularity as perhaps it needs to. We know, for instance, actually there's a real issue of affordability, mainly, mainly not exclusively, in one bed properties or smaller properties. That's where it really bites for single people. Equally, we also know it's working people that are, are, are most suffering here. Um, and that actually is a problem, an endemic problem in Wales of low wages. Low wages and the fact our income in Wales, actually, looking at some stats only last week, has risen much more slowly than any other part of the UK compared to London, Northern Ireland, where it had risen by over 8%, Scotland, 4.5%, uh, Wales, Wales income, 2.6% over the same period. So you can see the challenge we've got in Wales is around good jobs, well-paid jobs, as well as ensuring events are affordable. There is a lot of work going on around affordability. Um, the work that Joseph Rantree have done um, is informing uh, a model, a living rent model, a number of my members' house associations have adopted in Wales. Uh, more to do. And actually, it's a real challenge for the next government. Get your funding mix right to, to help us avoid problem growing, essentially. You know, housing ultimately, what's it funded by? It's funded through, yes, rent, but it's down to land price and it's down to bill costs. It's about a grant that government ultimately give you towards that. So we need to have that conversation. And that's your new supply. Meanwhile, in our existing stock, we've got a massive challenge coming over the hill where we need to retrofit it to get it up to the highest environmental standards. And that's about people being able to afford to live in those homes as well, hopefully managing to hold their fuel bills down. So, yeah, it's not an easy answer, um, but I, I think it's good that the issue has been recognised. And I think the early work is, is encouraging. But there's a big challenge for Wales, as ever, in all these things, economically, as much as addressing you know, one part of the problem. I think housing's potentially got a part of the solution there as well, because a lot of the jobs in, in you know, if you look at the whole system of, of, of designing and planning for and building homes, a lot of those jobs are, are pretty skilled, reasonably paid jobs. If we, you know, and it's, you know, fits in with all the work that's being done around foundational economy, around the circular economy, around, you know, you know, so again, it's and fits in with the Revan Foundation's work around, a, you know, fairer work, etc. So I just, again, really looking at it holistically, you know, so making sure social housing tackles poverty, but making sure housing really plays its role in an economy that has better quality work for more folk as well. I just wanted to raise um, an issue about sizes of property as well, which um, came out of a conversation. I was on a housing association um, board um, until the end of last year that operates in Cardiff in very ethnically diverse areas. Um, and our, our chief exec was out having conversations pre-COVID with folk in, in the communities in which we worked and asked, just asking about how they saw the organisation, how relevant they saw it, you know, what their views were. And a, a young Somali woman said to the chief exec, you know, you, your organisation doesn't build homes for, for families like mine, you know, which is absolute fair challenge. So, you know, most of what we build in the city centre is and back to the, what Stuart was saying, the components of cost, land prices, construction costs, but land price is massive issue. Um, one and two bedroom flats. So I thought, I, I thought, oh, I'm going to have a look at the national statistics and see see what proportion of the affordable housing that's, you know, of that target that we've got is what size property, um, which led me to look at the affordable housing statistic, regular, regular statistical publication, not divided by bedroom size. So then I emailed the housing stats folk in Welsh government and asked them and said, we don't collect that information so arguably you could but you could achieve the whole affordable housing target by building one and two bedroom properties and yes of course you would meet a lot of housing need but there would be a lot of housing need not just in eth ethnic minority 
um, communities, but families who are, you know, maybe got, you know, living intergenerationally or somebody who's disabled who needs care, you know, so I think there's a real issue about equity and justice in, again, it speaks for, you know, it comes back to money in the end of things, but I do think, you know, when we're looking forward, we really need to be mindful of of that, you know, because at the moment the deal in Cardiff really is if you've got a bigger, bigger household, you want a house where you're not going to be overcrowded, you go and live on the edge of the city. So you trade off your your social and cultural and all the other other networks you've got for a for a for a home of the right size, or you stay more central centrally, but you're going to be overcrowded with all the implications we've seen um, in terms of COVID. So I do think there's some real equity issues for us to again, not easy. But we need, you know, I think we need to be really honest about where we are and what our current system is and is not able to deliver and really try and unpick that and come up with something, you know, even if it's incrementally moving towards a fairer, a fairer system. Yeah, and not just carry on with the 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 bits that are not working at the moment. So, so there's one reason to be cheerful, isn't there, there, I think. Um, the race quality action plan, the Welsh Government are currently putting in place, and there's a housing chapter on that, which I, and I've seen the draft talks directly about the size question about the size of properties being built and i think that will be transferred across into some sort of target in the program i think it'll be acknowledged finally so that's a step forward and that's been acknowledged and hopefully they'll collect the data and then we'll know yeah, well. absolutely that would be but you know the point about equity actually yes larger homes for, for larger families absolutely key i think covid as well if we're serious about tackling uh, social injustice and inequality which i think social housing is really designed to do and it's our role to do look what's happened during covid um what do we know about the way people are working now i'm sitting in my my house working today uh, speaking to you guys uh, we know going forward in the future there are going to be more jobs based at home at least some of the time are we put, are we putting enough space into the homes we're building to enable people to be able to work from home take advantage of the economic opportunities that will be there otherwise you're just building in for me inequality that's really when it's got to be rested as well, because that's about space again, and that leads to cost. And yeah, that's a challenge. But if nothing else on the back of this pandemic, we've got to fundamentally reassess what we're building and the role it will play in people's lives. So I think that's actually worth acknowledging as well, thinking about what Welsh Government has done in this space is a kind of linkages into the social security system at Westminster. Um, I remember back when I was doing my PhD, it was just before the 2015 election, you know, and speaking to some chief execs, and the general's sense around the bedroom tax was, well, if there's a different government, the bedroom tax will go. And no one wants one bedroom houses. They all want two bedroom flats or houses. So, you know, we're building these just to you know, meet that welfare policy. Um, now, obviously, time has moved on and that's going to be pretty baked in now by the time any kind of reform comes around that. But it kind of demonstrates, I think, that, you know, some of those limitations, you know, in Welsh government's credit, you know, that does inhibit what the sector can do. Because, you know, building those larger homes, as Stuart mentioned, you know, having that second room where someone could work from home, you know, having to do that in a way that then doesn't mean that that home gets captured by the bedroom tax and, and, and those families get punished is a, is a real, real challenge. So it's kind of, even though this is one of the devolved areas that's most clearly devolved and where a lot of action has happened, even still in that sort of area, reserve powers at UK level still has a massive impact in terms of what can and can't be done. I think anyone who lives in an urban centre in Wales has in the last few years seen uh, a huge increase in, in development that often feels completely unwanted by local communities. If you live in Cardiff, like I do, I think we've all seen the, 
numerous high-rise flats that no one seems to live in. Is there anything that Welsh Government could do more of to ensure that local communities are more involved in this planning process? I'm going to start by saying planning law is not my expertise in any shape, way, or form. So just uh, help it there. I think there is something that one of my colleagues um, has been doing quite a bit of work on around community assets. You know, I think that would be a really strong starting place by having something like a Community Rights Act. So that when, you know, these historical assets in the middle of our towns and cities come up for sale, but actually that the local community has a chance to buy them and look after them and run them for the community. You know, a lot of the tensions we've seen is around, you know, these buildings of historical local value for the community are just going um, to be replaced by these things that feel alien to that community. So I think something around that would, you know, and giving the community the opportunity around ownership would be a step forward, you know, in its own right. But that wouldn't tackle some of the things, you know, that, that you've mentioned there. And I think, you know, and, and that is considered around, you know, legislation, isn't it? If, that, if there's a sense that the system isn't working, that it isn't allowing local authorities to control in the way that they might want to, you know, which seems to be what some local authority leaders are arguing, judging by what's being put out on social media, then, you know, is there is there a way to kind of change that planning regulation so that that, that gives local authorities more power to say, no, we don't want that particular development to happen? obviously we'd have to be very careful in the way we did that because obviously we do know that there's maybe a problem with nimbyism around social housing in particular you know kind of, um, some, of some of the concerns around developing that so it would need to be done carefully but i think there's definitely scope to look then to learn you know if local authority members are saying there are limitations to what we can't and can't do around these controversial planning developments then you know that is something to go back and and change the system to allow them to have more say if, 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 if that feels necessary well, I think in many cases, the flats that are being built in cities aren't social housing, are they? They're most often student accommodation, as far as I can, I can see in Cardiff. I speak as a resident myself. Um, do you know, there's a real opportunity here uh, if, if we're getting things wrong. And if COVID provides it again, city centres and the economy, for me, around them, is going to change radically. We already know that part of the problem in Cardiff actually is an oversupply now of student accommodation. The amount of changes of use application we've seen in the last few months for developers, you know, it's unreal. It's not a week goes past without never bad for asking for a change of use because they're not going to fill it with students. Now, is that permanent post-COVID? Possibly, because a lot of this was predicated on foreign students arriving in the country. Uh, I'm not sure we're quite the most welcoming state for foreign students currently, given the, the wider political environment. Perhaps we are still, I don't know. But the other thing as well is city centres are going to change radically. We know there's a 40% oversupply of retail, for instance. We know that many offices, my own included, aren't going to be going back probably to a full workforce five days a week in the office. That's going to change the economy of city centres as well. So we need to have a conversation about what are our towns, what are our city centres for? What are the amenities we live there? What is the type of residential accommodation we have there? And actually, rather than just continuing to plough the photo of what I think is increasingly looking, probably like a failed economic model sooner or later, let's have the conversation in Wales about what we want things to look like. And of course, that has to involve local people at the heart of it. I'd like to see, really, if we're talking about elections and manifestos, you know, some radical proposals around what we're going to do with our urban areas, our city centres, the regeneration agenda would be really welcome to see. Yeah, I think there's an issue, there's a big issue about qu the quality of what's built, the, the proliferation of student, I, I call them um, monuments to student debt, the towers. Uh, my, <laughs> as people who know me well will know that I'm one of my, my bete noirs in housing, but um, um, so there's, I think there's a real issue about quality um, that's built, whether that be, um, you know, city centre stuff or the, the, the 
properties that are going up in northwest Cardiff, you know, and 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 like what in the planning system would help drive quality, or is it simply a matter of money? And there's, uh, I mean, I can't believe in a city like Cardiff, seeing the house prices that that the financial system, even the current system, can't drive better quality private sector housing for for sale. Something that's more in keeping with the with the landscape and doesn't look like your your little boxes. And I think that feeds into local communities feeling about, you know, so so not only is all this extra housing coming, it looks terrible or it doesn't look great, you know, um, linked with kind of a whole set of stuff around infrastructure, particularly around transport, you know, we see that in see that in Cardiff. But then also I think because of the way our housing system is or our housing tenure mix is in the in, in Wales, which is not that distant, it's quite different from to Scotland. Scotland's got a greater proportion of social housing. It's not that different to to England, you know, there's very little um, cooperatively, you know, community owned housing as well. And again, I think, you know, if you look in countries where there's a lot more of that, then you've got more of a sense of not detailed control over what's happening, but a set more of a sense of, of, of community. So I think those are those are some big issues for me. I mean, I having worked in Welsh government for two years and wrestled a bit with planning stuff it is a really complex kind of behemoth of a thing really and start you start changing one bit over here and then another bit but I do I think we've probably had a good try collectively at making the current planning system work better and we're still not in many cases getting great great results so I do think it's something that but I wouldn't just go do something where you know you might have a might have the result of much less housing being built um, and again it's sort of it's back to the whole thing of sort of housing as in as investment and even if it's not it's the people's sense of the value of their home being represented in pounds and you, you know you quite often hear it don't you with it that'll 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 make that development will make the value of my house go down and that's a hugely big cultural thing and somehow I mean we have as Stuart said we've got an opportunity with COVID of people kind of seeing the value of home as much more of a you know a, a safe and secure place to be and to be able to work from if you're lucky enough to be able to do that for your kids to have space to play you know all that sort of stuff so I think you know we've got to start trying to change the narrative around home but we're 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 working against some very very big big forces which include global globe flows of global capital so but you know Scotland has a lot more cooperative housing you know there are models that we could you know and we could try things in different in in different areas I think to try and overcome some of this stuff but it's not easy but the, yeah, for me, the, the 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 monuments to student debt. It's a big, it's a big old scam, as far as I'm concerned. As Stuart said, they just put put them up. You know, they're built to lower standards than other accommodation. No contribution to affordable housing or infrastructure, and then they then they apply for change of use to non-students. And it's you know, Cardiff Council will maintain, and other cities will maintain. There's very little they can do about it. Well, if that's really the case, then the system is pretty bust, isn't it? You know. And I think just on the standards point as well, you know, there's minimum standards in the social sector, which are more robust in many circumstances. So, you know, if that's the minimum we're expecting from the social sector, why are we expecting people to be living in poorer quality homes in the private sector, either as ownership or renting? You know, surely there's a minimum standard that we should expect everyone to be living in in terms of the quality of their homes. And some of the, some of the student stuff may end up in the social sector, you know, they could end up as accommodation for for folk who've experienced homelessness so presumably at some point we'd have to improve the standards anyway so I you know it, yeah it's a bit of a it's a it's a bit of a mess that stuff at the moment. Um, we're going to move on now quickly to uh, homelessness and obviously the, the the 2014 Housing Act put a statutory obligation on local authorities to provide housing 
to those who would otherwise be homeless. Steph, would you say that this legislation has been a success? I think there's a fundamental problem that we come back to again is a lack of housing, isn't it? You know, it's, um, it's it's all well and good having duties and expectations and obligations, but if we haven't got the homes to put people in, the maximum effectiveness of those of those pieces of legislation are not going to be seen. So I think there has been progress, you know, and and it and it is improving the system, but until we've got enough homes for people to live in the overarching objectives of our act and other legislation, whichever legislation we might want to act, is always going to be undermined until we get to a point where we've got sufficient supply. I mean, one of the main things that the act did was require local authorities um, and work in partnership with others to prevent homelessness where it was possible to do so. And if you look at the, the numbers, a lot of homelessness has been, um, has been prevented, um, not universally applied across the 22 local authorities. So, you know, there's authorities that are doing really well on that, others where it's where are not doing so well, sometimes for reasons about what approach they've taken and how well they work in partnership across the local authority beyond, some, some to do with money, but some to do with the housing market of particular areas. You know, some areas have got a, you know, a private rented sector where there's very few lower, um, you know, decent lower rent properties, others more so, you know, so there's all sorts of local differences, but but again, and also a difference in culture across the 22 local authorities. So some authorities have worked much more to the, you know, to the spirit and beyond of the legislation, and others others have treated it more as a sort of compliance thing. But I do think it moved the goal. You know, for me, you know, and I had had a small part in in, in working on that legislation. So I do do think it played a role in shifting the goalposts a bit. You know, in terms of of a system that had been in place largely. Or, or changed a little bit, but not much in structure since 1977, you know, and which was about, you know, dealing with the crisis of homelessness, not about preventing it. So I do think that's made a difference. I mean, interestingly, in Scotland, they've just been published a piece of work about how you take the prevention duties across the whole of the lo local authorities and beyond to other services like health, criminal justice, etc. I mean, Scotland have got a obviously got a different devolution settlement, but I'm sure there's stuff we can learn in Wales, in Wales from from that. So I think it's been a partial, um, partial success again, but as Steph said, you know, when actually the, the way of relieving someone's homelessness is to provide them with, with the most affordable, most good quality housing there is, which is, which is social housing. Um, and there's a real, real shortage of supply, then you're, you know, you're a bit, there's always going to be compromise in working with people to find solutions to, to the housing issues. So yeah, par partial success, but but I would like to see this. We latterly there's been a homelessness action group which has made a set of recommendations for how we can actually end homelessness in Wales. With a load of recommendations, there is going to be a, um, a, a plan coming out that puts that into a plan over the next number of years. You know, political parties are signing up to to, to commit to having a plan, but again, it'll be down to it'll be down to resourcing it. You know, and really making that a that a high priority so we sort of keep coming back into this this loop and the challenge that we've got with some some bits being devolved and some you know so criminal justice not devolved so all the the tricky interface between prison and housing you've got a non-devolved area trying to work with a devolved area so um partial partial success but you know lots of work still to be done as i've said on so many things really it's, it's um it's culture isn't it as much as the legislation I, I think there's actually one of the things I'm most proud of of housing associations during the COVID period over the last year and before that was the work we've done around 
um, no evictions into homelessness. Yes, evictions have been banned in legislation across this period, but we, we moved before the legislation even arrived to commit that nobody would be evicted due to COVID hardship in this period, which was great. I thought really reflected the values um, to which, uh, which housing associations espouse. But we've also made a huge progress on no evictions into homelessness. The numbers have dropped off a cliff. And I think that, that's about culture. That's not about legislation. You know, that's about bringing people on a journey to say you can do this. Uh, and I think that's one of the big step forwards. Local authorities as well. It's not just housing associations. The whole of the social housing sector, I think, have stepped up and embraced that challenge. So the legislation sets the tone. And you know, we shouldn't underestimate that, but it's culture ultimately. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Stuart, and that's why I feel, you know, um, changing the legislation in a way is the easy bit, um, changing the culture is the, the, the hard bit, and it's around, you know, leadership, a whole part of things. I say that, you know, it's exactly the same for the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act, for all, the, for all those other acts that are really trying to shift how we see things and how our timescales for decision-making, you know, how long we look into the future in terms of decision-making. Those are all cultural things which are trying to, Poke us out of annuality and you know silo working and you know it's the same underlying things really but there's a lot of bits of the system that work against that so it is it is quite um, hard work but as, you know it can you know various organisations have shown it really can be done so throughout the course of the pandemic the Welsh government have at least claimed to have tried to house everyone who was homeless before the pandemic how successful has this plan been and, and do you know what they plan to do? Well, what, what, what they seem to want to do the next steps in order to ensure that once the pandemic is over and this burden is sort of relieved from them, that they ensure that no one is then left homeless? So, I mean, I have to pay credit to Julie Jones really on, on this issue. You know, she took really first minister in any part of the UK to really take action on this and 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 has secured you know some good some good amounts of money you know never enough but um good amounts of money initially to provide temporary accommodation and then and then more recently to carry on funding temporary accommodation but then also to look at how you know increasing supply and how you know supporting rapid rehousing etc so I I think to my knowledge the numbers of people on the streets um, are in most local authorities across Wales in single figures, which is quite a big change from where things were. I, th I think one of the really interesting things um, is, is when people were um, moved into accommodation, um, the numbers were far higher than the rough sleeping counts had ever shown, which kind of everyone who worked in frontline homelessness always knew, but that's, uh, that, that, that was kind of showed that, that showed, you know, really gave evidence that those numbers were higher. You know, it hasn't eliminated folks sleeping on the street altogether, but the numbers are much, much lower. And and the outreach teams that there are in, in each area are in touch with the folk, you know, and have really tried to support the folk that still remain on the streets to, to come in, if you like, for a number of reasons. Um, that's that's not what, what some people um, what, what some people want to do. So I think it, it was, a you know, tremendous um <laughs> Effort, sorry, there's a hand in the background. <laughs> Agree. <laughs> um, and people are still, you know, new people are presenting as homeless. There's new crises coming up for people, and so there's just a massive challenge now of of of, of not only caring for local authorities and and all their partner organisations, not only carrying on responding to the homelessness that is arising, but actually then being able to move move those folk on 
um, into, into more secure housing, housing situations. Some of that's already been happening um, over, the last, over the last few months, um, but the numbers are pretty challenging. Uh, has, what, again, I would give Judy James credit for is, is she took the recommendations from the Homelessness Action Group in terms of direction of travel and tried to get that to inform the crisis response to COVID. So, so really trying to think about a, a rapid rehousing approach, which means, you know, keeping temporary accommodation, stays in temporary accommodation as, as short as possible. You know, some of those principles around um, the way forward she have informed the, the crisis response. But, but yeah, I'm not um, by any means underestimating the, the significance of the job we've got collectively um, over, the next, over the next while. One of the big challenges is going to be going forward, of course, is those people who have suffered economically as a result of the pandemic. So not only have we got to deal and find longer term solutions to the people that great work has already been done with, but the number who are going to present as homelessness is probably going to increase quite substantially. We ran a survey with YouGov back in December to look at the impact of the pandemic um, on people's incomes and, and, and their spending and, and debt, and renters were significantly hard to hit in terms of cutting back and falling into debt when homeowners, about 6% of private renters have fallen behind on their rent already. They're a private rented households, that is, as well. So not just the number of people, the number of people would, would be higher. So you know, that's really concerning that we're going to have that challenge coming down the line um, to a system that's already stretched. Maybe one of the things we could look to do maybe over the next few months is think about how do we more effectively get money into those people's pockets so we prevent them presenting. Um, and kind of one of the um, concerning things um, heard recently was around that there are a lot of local authorities in Wales who haven't made full use of scratchy housing payments and um, so those are cash payments and um, the money's coming from DWP as well so the money has to go back unless it's used so and and there are some local authority areas in Wales that haven't used up all that money and um, so you know using all that money would as a starting point ease some of those pressures and prevent issues down the line but even having done that I think it is likely we are going to have a challenge a major challenge of of a surge in the number of people being homeless, you know, once was once the legislation that protects people from evictions comes to an end. The obvious question to ask is if we've done so well uh, reducing our homeless numbers now, why couldn't we do it before? Well, I think like many things, COVID provided a focus for swift action and a public health emergency, as it was seen at that point, essentially meant that money had to be found, resource had to be found, and it was seen as you know, clearly it is an emergency, you know, homelessness is an emergency, but it suddenly became a much higher priority for, for people to address. And I think that was absolutely right. And, and, and don't forget, there was also an opportunity in terms of some temporary accommodation that the, the pandemic provided. Uh, hotels, particularly, were closed for the pandemic. Some of those reopened to bring in street homeless and give them somewhere warm and secure. So that was an opportunity that was there that wasn't there when the, you know, pre-COVID. So one thing we haven't talked about here as well, yes, of course, it's about supply ultimately for moving people on to keep them off the streets, but it's the level of support that has to go in to ensure that people who particularly have been street homeless don't return to the streets. The level of support they need to sustain um, at home and make sure, you know, make sure they're able to, to meet their commitments and, and, and live their life in a, in a great way. That takes a lot of resource. And that's always been the challenge, actually, on the revenue funding side to fund those support services. Funny enough, in Wales, although you know, we're celebrating a big increase in capital funding in the budget last week for housing and other areas as well, part of that actually is because of some of, some of the money that's come down from Westminster related to COVID spending, there's suddenly a, 
a big pool of money available to spend. Is capital capital funding actually hasn't been the squeeze in Wales for me. It's been revenue funding, and that will remain the challenge, I think, going forward in the next few years. Yes, particularly when you look at the the budget we've just had, the, you know, the budget we just had from the Westminster government, you know, capital, you know, and there is a current administration at Westminster, rather, there's a rather a, 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 a like for for big infrastructure, you know, big shiny infrastructure projects, which generate, you know, a, a consequential for Wales, fine, great, you know, can use, can, we can always use use capital, but as, you're right, Stuart, you know, if there's not sufficient revenue, you know, we've seen it with the pay rise, you know, proposed pay rise for the NHS in, in England, I guess, you know, if you're not, if you're not prepared to invest in revenue in, in to ensure services for folk, then we, you know, yes, you're in some trouble. And I think one of the issues that was raised by the Homelessness Action Group was the the workforce issues around, you know, particularly the support support sector, you know, squeeze on money and the way that services are commissioned means that a lot of those support roles are, you know, fairly poorly paid, you know, below the average Welsh wage. But you're actually asking someone to do a very skilled job and so that, and it's not anyone, any organisation's particular intention to do it that way, to underpay people, just the way funding is funneled and then the, the, the services are commissioned ends up with, you know, potentially people working in support, claiming universal credit, struggling to pay their rent, you know. So we, again, there's some, there's some recommendations in the Homelessness Action Group around workforce development and professionalisation and recognition. But not, again, none of that, that's easy. The money needs to come from, come from somewhere and if you if you're the Welsh government amount of money overall amount of money they've got to spend is you know driven by a a, a, a government in Westminster that you know yeah values capital squeezing revenue then you know as ever we've got you know some really tricky decisions on our hands. Two years ago Mark Drakeford promised that he would abolish section 21 uh, evictions when the Welsh government has just had a huge bit of housing legislation out on a consultation that I'm sure you've all seen, why they haven't then decided to go and permanently end no-fault evictions. Steph, do you have any sort of insight as to why that decision was taken? I, I think the reason, but there was possible concerns that in ending kind of section 21, you would create other loopholes that would be less watertight than an extended notice period. I think seemed to be my reading anyway of the consultation period when um, paper when it when it came out. Other people might have a, other insights on that, but that that seemed to be the rationale anyway in terms of what, when that consultation paper came out. Um, you know, I think it is great progress that we have got this extended kind of um, you know guarantees for people, but you know, obviously we need to go further. And one of the things that you know, is a real concern, and there's a lot of academic research on this actually, as well as about the precarity of the private rental sector. Um, and there's a sense that maybe you know, back in the day when the private rental sector maybe was young kind of professional types and students who didn't, you know, who were quite happy to move house one year to the next, that was fine. But if you've got a child in school and you're in the private rental sector for the long term, then the stress of having to move often, you know, that's a completely different ball game really in terms of kind of what what, what you're going to have to deal with. So I think, you know, it's obviously progress, but far more needs to be done on it. And also, you know, about some of the other stuff we've discussed around the private rental sector, about the quality of the sector, you know, are the homes up to scratch? And just thinking about as well in terms of what are we trying to achieve with the legislation around the private rental sector? You know, there's a lot of talk about professionalising the sector, but what do we mean by that? Do we mean making the sector kind of more professional for the sake of landlords, kind of, you know, 
being a bit smarter, knowing the regulation is a bit better, but kind of fundamentally nothing really changes from the tenant's perspective. I think we need to think about kind of how do we leave this from the tenant side? And I think one of the challenges there, of course, is how do we get tenants to feed into the process? Um, I think there has been far more success in the social sector on this front because, um, you know, organisations where I used to work for TPAS, um, you know, where, um, you know, tenant participation is far more established in the social sector. There's far fewer kind of bodies like that. We recently had the emergence of Acorn, for example, which I think has been a really positive step in terms of giving voice to the private sector kind of tenant space. But um, far more needs to be done around that as well, because, you know, there is a strong landlord voice in Wales, uh, in the private rental sector. The tenant voice has been a lot weaker, and I think we need to build that up as well, because that's crucial to building up that political will and political pressure to get those changes that, um, you know, that a lot of us want to see, but that, that message has been dispersed and hasn't been pulled together maybe as effectively as maybe some of the, the, the landlord voices has due to the kind of the nature of the way that that, that sector has worked. Absolutely, totally, Stefan. I mean, you know, the, the absence of a national tenants voice or, a, or, a, or a, I mean, hopefully ACORN will grow into a national tenants union in Wales, but it, there's a real imbalance there in the policy making process. Um, I'd also flag up, you know, yet again, private renting is one of those areas where you can actually see the impact of devolved and non-devolved areas. So taxation isn't devolved. So there were changes made at Westminster about um, the, 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 the taxation regime for private sector landlords, which obviously affected landlords in, in Wales as well as, as well as in England, which then um, sort of comes together with gets you, you know, that's that's one of the things that comes back from landlords quite often. You know, these, these are more changes, more requirements you're putting on us. You know, at a time when the taxation regime has become less less advantageous, quite rightly so, I would I would I would say, the private rental sector has grown a lot in recent years. You know, and as, as Stefan says, it's now home to quite a lot of families, but not in a necessarily in a way that means they have secure, affordable homes. So I do think we need to have a a great. I mean, Scotland have done quite a lot of work around the private rented sector, although their private rented sector is smaller, so maybe there's there's less there's you know, in a way, there's less impact to what they're doing. But I do think it needs a it needs a proper think through, and, and the tenant voices, as Stefan said, need to come through as a balance to other to other other voices. As as for the as for the Section Twenty One issue, I do think there is we do have a bit of a, a a history in housing sort of littered with the unintended consequence, and so I do think you've got to be really careful when you're passing legislation that it doesn't create a whole pile of unintended consequences. And sometimes I think, you know, as folk outside of government, we can ask for something. I'm not saying this is the case with Section 21, but we can ask for something that seems really simple and straightforward. And yet when you when you then look look into it, it, it may well have a whole pile of unintended consequences, which which mean it doesn't have the impact that you want it to have. So I think it's really thinking about principles and how and, and looking in the in the 360 terms. So how do you achieve, you know, and it's and it's around you know greater security for folk the whole issue around rents and the whole issue about quality. There's been some really interesting work done in other countries on, and some academic analysis of, of rent, of so-called rent controls, um, limiting the um, amount by which private sector rents can be increased um, over any period. Again, that can have all sorts of unintended consequences if you don't do anything about security and you don't do anything about rent increases between tenancies, because then you could just incentivize landlords to get rid of the current tenants so they can put the rent up for the for the next tenant so again it's it's you know we keep coming back to this need for a holistic approach 
Yeah, if you, if, you, if you had a representative from the private uh, landlords lobby group here, they'd tell you about all these things that you do will impact on supply and landlords will leave the market and all the rest of it. And, um, and that may be true. I think this is going in one direction, though. So England, even England, looking at minimum floor on standards in terms of environmental sustainability standards for private rented properties. If England are bringing that in, there's no way that Wales could not follow that on, you know, and build on it, I would argue, as well. I also thought it was very, very interesting. We've just seen the, um, the Rented Homes Wales Amendment uh, Bill go through the Senev. Uh, Ply voted against it at the final reading, having supported some of the amendments during it. Why did they vote against it? Because they felt it didn't go far enough on tenants' rights. Okay? So we've got an election. I think the outcome of that election is very much up in the air as to what the arrangements are post that election. I think the direction of travel on tenants' rights in the private sector is probably going one way, to be honest with you, but we'll see. That is the greatest link I could have ever asked for. You read my mind of what we're doing next. So uh, this is a podcast about an election. I'm going to ask you all what you think the housing platform will be like in the next Senev term. And then I'm going to ask you what you think the result of the Senev election will be. And we're going to start with Tamsin. Oh, dear. <laughs> Not sure I'm going to be drawn on the, re the result. I suppose... Um... I, well, actually, I'll say that first. I think we, or, I mean, if you uh, was there last week, two or three polls, and they all show totally different things, different different methodologies, etc. So I think it's a really open thing. One suspects a coalition of some description, um, which it, from from my point of view is no bad thing because actually I think that that formal process of forming a coalition and actually agreeing what you're going to do is for me quite a good process because then. You've got, you know, there's a, there's sort of more accountability between the two or however many parties it is to actually actually thrash out what you can do and then actually deliver on it, um, and less maybe less horse trading during the during the Senate term. Um, what's housing going to be like? I mean, I really hope, you know, I think the last five years with all its hiccups and all the, you know, culture change that hasn't fully been, you know, fully been gone through yet, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, I do think it's been a pretty positive five years for, for housing in terms of moving in the right direction. Um, so I really hope that that can be built on in the next term, you know, so ambitious targets for, for social housing, uh, you know, a plan to end homelessness in Wales and really start getting some traction on moving, moving towards that. I mean, a number of organisations are looking for um, legislation on the right to adequate housing, which I think is fine as long as we do the practical stuff to make that, make that a reality. Um, like you know, many many of our other pieces of legislation really making it bite. I am worried about revenue, as Stuart's already mentioned, because um, that could undermine. If we get really difficult revenue settlements, that could really undermine our ability to 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 provide the the sort of support and wider services that are needed to you know enable people to 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 to, to thrive in 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 their homes. My hopeful bit says housing will have a reasonable priority. And we should see some real progress made progress made on environmental standards for new homes, hopefully some progress made on improving the environmental standards of existing homes, although I appreciate that that is really, really challenging. You know, it says, you know, that by the end of the five years, we can see some real progress on a number of fronts. My, my more cynical side is a bit more concerned, I have to say, but there's a huge amount of uncertainty at the moment. We don't know how money's going to flow. We don't know, you know, how long the pandemic will last in its current phase and then and then what 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 form recovery could or could look like but i would make the case for housing to be really 
you know, at the centre of COVID recovery in Wales, because it can, because it can, it can deliver on so many on so many fronts and be part of, 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 of that, as we talked about before, a fairer economy, you know, better environment, better quality environment, you know, providing folk with good with good quality homes. Um, to enable them to get on with their lives so it really can be it's just whether it whether it will be you know i'd like to you know housing wouldn't it be amazing if housing was put on the same level same kind of footing as 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 attracting foreign inward investment in terms of the economy you know i can dream i can dream <laughs> uh, well i know on the on the result i know you only recently had jack lander on from cardiff university to discuss poland jack's a very good friend of mine so um, i agree with jack to kind of go back to 2015. So I think that's my way out of uh, answering, answering that question. In terms of kind of the policy platform, I think we are going to progress on social home building. I think, you know, there is clearly kind of pledges being made by all the parties who are likely to form a government um, kind of uh, along those lines. I think we're going to see some progress there. I think I'd like to see kind of over the, the start of that next term, maybe that discussion on rent, given that the rent kind of settlement is coming to an end to thinking about how can we achieve what we want around building and also think about affordability kind of across the piece. And I think also kind of the, the final thing is kind of the bit of work we've been doing around what we're calling the Welsh benefit system. So this is the idea of pulling together all the different bits and bobs that are with, is within the Welsh government's gifts. So things from free school meals to council tax reduction scheme um, to kind of um, all, all of the bits of our system. You know, we spend a huge amount of money on, on those schemes, about 400 million. Um, a year, which is you know the same as we were, the same as we spend on universal credit and job seekers allowance combined in 2019-20. So we spend a huge amount of money on these schemes, but we don't really make good use of them at the moment, kind of coherently. So I think that would be my one kind of hope as well going forward is that we'd make some progress on that and kind of realise there's a potential pot of money there to unlock to put more money into people's pockets so they can afford their housing more going forward. I think um, I think some really positive um, vibe for housing. If I'm honest, in this election, I think it's really interesting when you look at the the two parties that currently sit outside government that um, are perhaps more, most likely to be part of that government post election. Possibly, they've both um, they've both criticised Labour for the paucity of their housing targets and think they should be doing more. And you know, we've seen we've seen this government I think now commit beyond the election if they're in power to say we're going to build twenty thousand uh, social homes in the next. Parliamentary term that is an increase actually, as Tamsin said, it was fourteen and a half thousand in this term, and the money looks to be following that at the moment. Let's hope that continues. But you know, then you look at Plaid, it is Plaid, Plaid at all about fifty thousand. Now I have my own views on whether fifty thousand is achievable in a five-year period. It's a fantastic target, but the rate you'd have to ramp up delivery looks challenging. I would say that, but that's great. It's almost if I look at the Plaid. The Blind Manifesto, I think the housing stuff's the most eye-catching thing in it. It's really ambitious. And that's great. It means we're at the top of the agenda. I think, yes, it's about providing people with decent homes, homes where they can live their lives. But Tamsin's point, I think we're absolutely seeing as central to the COVID recovery, creating good jobs, bringing money into Wales, bringing work. And then if you have the retrofit agenda, bringing up of existing homes uh, to good environmental standards, Reducing the cost of people who, for people who live in them. That would definitely tick one of Steph's boxes. But also, again, a real opportunity to create a Welsh supply chain with good, skilled jobs that are going to be there for the next 20, 30 years doing the housing stock across Wales. Big opportunity there post-COVID to, to create some economic activity and offer people a bit of hope, I think, as well. Uh, thank you all so much. If people want to uh, 
find you on Twitter to uh, see what else you've got to say. Where can they find you? Uh, yeah, I'm at, at Stuart, S-S-D-U-A-R-T underscore C-H-C. I am at Steph H. Evans, or um, at Bevan Foundation as well for our corporate account. Uh, at Tamsin Sterling, S-T-I-R-L-I-N-G-1. Wonderful. Thank you very much. If you've enjoyed what you've heard tonight, please don't forget to find us on Medium at Here I Blog Cymru, on Facebook at Here I Blog Cymru, and on Twitter at Here I Blog. Thank you for listening to Here I. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review.